please pray with me? Holy Spirit, come and breathe on your creation once again. Restore and renew your life within us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. The end of St. Paul's sermon in Acts 17 catches the Athenians by surprise. It also caught me by surprise this past week. St. Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The Athenians are surprised because the apostle is proclaiming a bodily resurrection. None of their religious philosophies thought about the future or the human body in that way. I was surprised because the apostle seems to be making a particular connection between resurrection and judgment. And those are not things that I usually associate. But for St. Paul, Jesus' resurrection verifies and assures us that he is the man God has appointed to judge the world in righteousness. And this makes sense if you stop and think about it, which apparently I never had. When Jesus stands up and walks out of the tomb beyond the power of death, a new creation dawns. But a new creation is necessarily an act of judgment on creation as it has been. If God is remaking the world, that must mean the world needs to be remade. If God is remaking us, that must mean that we need to be remade. Creation needs to be transformed and restored. We need to be put to death and buried and raised to life again. Jesus' resurrection is an act of judgment. And because he is the beginning and firstborn from the dead, as Paul writes to the Colossians, Jesus is the only one who has the authority and the right to pass judgment on us. The very fact of his risen bodily life is a judgment on our sin-sick souls and decaying bodies. And as we read the rest of the Apostles' Sermon, it becomes clear that what Jesus is passing judgment against specifically is our worship. Jesus is judging our worship. Now, in America in 2020, when we say the word worship, we usually mean what happens in a church on a Sunday morning. Or maybe what happens when you take out your prayer book and say the daily office, or perhaps when you listen to music on the Christian radio and sing along, worship music, yes? In this respect, the first century Athenians probably understood worship better than we do. Because in first century Athens, worship is all wrapped up with their political and civic life, with economic exchange, with agriculture, with home and family, with drama and sculpture and literature and sports. That's why the Athenians fill their city with altars and statues to the gods, because everything for them is implicated in worship. And because the Athenians recognize that everything is implicated in worship, the Athenians worship everything. There's a goddess of wisdom, and a goddess of sex, 
and a god of war and a god of feasting. There are altars to placate deities of the earth and the sea and the sky and the rivers and the rainstorms. There are even altars to unknown gods. Cover all your bases. In this respect, we imagine that we understand worship better than the first century Athenians. Because after all, we don't have altars scattered all over our cities or statues of the gods in places of honor on our mantelpieces. We don't start our public events with ceremonial sacrifice. We know there's only one God, and these created things aren't Him, right? Don't we know that? Well, listen to what Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, an idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it, without a second thought, almost without knowing it. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. If you want to find out what your gods are, there's a fairly simple diagnostic. Ask yourself, what do I turn to when I'm afraid or angry or stressed or tired? Where do I go for refuge or shelter or comfort? Ask yourself, what are the default options of my heart, the places I go automatically almost without thinking about it? When St. Paul first starts preaching in the lower parts of the city, some of the Athenians say he seems to be preaching foreign divinities. This God is foreign. He's strange to them. They know about so many gods, and yet they don't know the one true God. Or perhaps they don't know the one true God because they know so many gods that they've lost him in the crowd. Keller frames idolatry in terms of the one thing that I'll give anything for, and sometimes that's true. But what if sometimes we're like the Athenians? Our attention so dissipated and our love so scattered and our sacrifices divided among so many invisible altars that even our idols get less than our whole hearts. We may have forgotten that everything is implicated in worship, But that doesn't stop us from trying to worship everything. We may not call those other things gods, but that doesn't keep us from losing the one true God in the crowd. This is the irony of the fallen human condition. We seize the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil so that we can make ourselves like God. And the result is we lose the true knowledge of God. And the result of losing the knowledge of God is that we lose the true knowledge of ourselves and of creation. We put created things in the place of the Creator, and so we start to imagine that the Creator is just another created thing. We act as though God depends on us because all our other gods do, 
don't they? We're unable to see God amidst all the distractions, so we imagine that God must be far away or hard to find, as if He's not sustaining us every moment with every breath. We search for God, never stopping to think, what if He's the one searching for us? The Lord of heaven and earth becomes an unknown God, a foreign divinity, the true God becomes strange to us. And St. Paul's sermon about this strange foreign God reaches its climax with the resurrection of Jesus as the appointed judge. Because after all, what could be stranger than a man standing up and walking out of a tomb? What could be more foreign to our experience than a reversal of life and death? The resurrection of Jesus is an act of judgment on all the thousand false deities we've fashioned for ourselves that promise us strength or peace or safety or joy or comfort or belonging or meaning or hope, but can only abandon us at the grave. The resurrection of Jesus is an act of judgment on our own fallen humanity because it reveals how totally dependent we are on God. For every breath. The resurrection of Jesus is an act of judgment on our attempts to make the world do and be what only God can do and be for us, and distorting the world. The resurrection of Jesus is an act of judgment on us as God's creatures. But the resurrection of Jesus is not a rejection of us as God's creatures. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is our only hope for restoration as God's creatures because in Jesus, we see our own humanity transformed and redeemed and united to God. The resurrection of Jesus is our assurance that just because we've given up on God or lost Him in the crowd, that doesn't mean He's given up on us or lost us. Just because we've distorted and abused God's creation, that doesn't make it any less His. He doesn't write off this rebellious and fractured and death-dealing world and start over from scratch. He could. But to adapt a phrase from Alexander Schmemann, the Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation doesn't say, behold, I make all new things. What does he say? Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus in his resurrection is restoring creation to its true purpose. And what's the true purpose of creation? According to the book of Revelation. Worship. It's worship. You see, the problem with idolatry is not just that no idol can truly satisfy us, although that's true. The problem with idolatry is not just that a false god demands adulation that only the true God deserves, although that's true too. The problem with idolatry is that when we make anyone or anything an idol, we deny them their own creaturely fulfillment. Remember the words we prayed earlier from Psalm 148, this litany of everything in God's creation. Praise Him, all you angels of His. Praise Him, all His host. 
Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you stars of light. Praise the Lord upon the earth, you sea monsters in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and fog, mountains and hills, fruitful trees and cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things, birds of the air, young men and maidens, old men and children together. Let them praise the name of the Lord. The purpose of creation is worship. Because mere creatures make terrible gods. But creatures make awesome worshipers. Accepting God's judgment does not mean rejecting the goodness of creation. It means allowing the resurrection of Jesus to shatter our false images. And that work may be drastic and painful. There's no salvation except through the cross. But creatures themselves are not wrong just because we love them wrongly. He's not making all new things. He's making all things new. That's why these next three days we keep as rogation days when the church blesses fields and garden plots and chicken houses and flower beds. When we bless and proclaim God's blessing over the fruitfulness of creation. Because when we try to worship everything, it's a disaster. But that doesn't mean everything should not be offered up in worship. That's what everything is for. That's what we are for. As Aidan Kavanaugh used to say, worship, liturgy, is doing the world the way it was meant to be done. Liturgy, worship, is doing the world the way the world was meant to be done. That's what Jesus is talking about in John 15. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Worship is the action of a creature, the fundamental normal action of a creature in right relationship with the Creator. And that's why we can't simply fix our own worship by ourselves any more than we can raise ourselves from the dead. Because that isn't the kind of thing that true worship is. That isn't the kind of thing that we are. We're creatures, it turns out. Only the Creator can accomplish new creation. Only the one worthy of all praise can make our praises worthy. And so if the resurrection of Jesus is God's judgment on our disordered worship, the resurrection of Jesus is also where true worship starts. Because in Jesus we see a God who is not far from each one of us, as Paul says, but searches us out and makes himself known to us. A God who is not like an image formed by human art and imagination, but who fashions men and women in his own image and restores that image in his own body by uniting our nature to himself and raising it up from the grave. Worship is the life breath of a new creation. Worship is a response to the sacrifice of divine love. It doesn't start with us because we aren't God. But as we respond to divine love in union with Jesus, we come alive. And we become participants in our own salvation.
I want to close by suggesting two specific ways that we can participate in God's work of salvation and new creation in union with Jesus. First, we respond to divine love by accepting the judgment. Ask Jesus to shatter your false images and save you from idolatry. That's a dangerous prayer because if you ask Jesus to do that, he might do it. And it's painful. It's an agonizing deliverance. The way that false gods become false gods is by making a claim on our hearts and uprooting those idolatrous claims feels like crucifixion. Well, it is. But only as our images of these false gods are put to death, only as our false images of the true God are put to death, can we start to see and be won by the love of the God who is willing to be crucified for us? We respond to love by accepting the judgment. Second, we respond to divine love by practicing resurrection. Offer up those things you love and long for and say, Lord, these are your creatures and they belong to you and that's good. Lord, I'm your creature and I belong to you and that's good. Thank you for making all things new. And then make an act of praise. You could use Psalm 148. Or just say, praise you, Lord. Embrace being who you were made to be. Unite yourself to the Son of God who has triumphed over death. Breathe the life breath of a new creation. Allow the crucified and risen Jesus to fashion his image in you. And to make you a true worshiper. A resurrected worshiper. A renewed creation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.